This is the Inclusion Think Tank podcast brought to you by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education, NJCIE, where we talk about inclusive education, why it works, and how to make it happen. On this episode of the podcast, I welcome my guest, Dr. Teresa Herrero-Taylor. Teresa is the Director of Special Services in Jackson, New Jersey. During our conversation, we discuss the challenges and barriers of inclusion from a statewide perspective, and also how schools can support parents who believe that separate placement is better for their children who have disabilities. I would like to welcome everyone back to another episode of the Inclusion Think Tank podcast brought to you by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education. I am your host, Arthur Aston, and I am back with a brand new episode with my guest today, Dr. Teresa Herrero-Taylor. And uh, Teresa, I'm very happy that you are uh, joining me today. We had a great uh, pre-conversation before we started recording, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored that that I was selected to be interviewed. Yes, you're welcome. And uh, to begin our conversation, can you share a little bit about yourself with uh, our audience? Can you share with us who you are? And also um, tell us how you became interested in the inclusive education world. Absolutely. I'm a lot of different things. Um, Wife, uh, I'm a mother of three individuals with disabilities who are now young adults. Um, One is profoundly disabled, uh, intellectually disabled and autistic. Uh, The other two are what you call twice exceptional. So quite bright and gifted, but have their own share of um, disabilities themselves that they have to contend with. Um, I'm also a licensed psychologist. Um, I am a board certified behavior analyst. Um, I was a school psychologist for many years. I'm now a director of special services in Jackson. Uh, I do believe that um, helping individuals with disabilities is my calling. Uh, It's not a job for me, it's absolutely a passion. Um, And it's something that, you know, I was already in the field uh, when I became a parent and I didn't feel like it was by accident. I felt that uh, I was probably mediocre before that and being a parent and actually living with disabilities, um, creating opportunities for them um, was what I was meant to do. So, you know, filling into this role, a lot of people will say, oh, do you wanna be in another? No, I'm exactly where I was meant to be. I was meant to be a director of special services. um, And I do subscribe to the philosophy that um, there shouldn't be limitations on individuals um, and that, they can always do more, right? And you know, one of the things I uh, have always told teachers is how do you know if you haven't tried, right? How do they know if they haven't tried that we shouldn't put limits and parameters on what they do and what they can do. Um, so, and time and time again, students continue to surprise me, right? No one has a crystal ball to make those kind of predictions. And so it would really be, um, it's just not the way I am. I'm an empowerment person. I believe in the ability to um, help people reach whatever uh, lanes that they can um, and certainly want to, and even perhaps even exceed those. Because sometimes, you know, those uh, 
self-fulfilling prophecies or those low expectations sometimes get internalized, right? So it is always about pushing forward and uh, really empowering people to go as far as they can. Yes, I love what you said of, of you know, how do you know if you don't try and and um, the the limitations, me, myself having a disability, and I just answered this question on uh, one of my social media sites uh, that someone asked, um, you know, how, how can they be a better ally for people uh, with disabilities? And, you know, I, I said, by simply not making assumptions about their abilities. <laughs> yeah, Arthur, when my son was 16, <clears throat> I was at an IEP meeting. This is my profoundly um, challenged son. Um, and I said, um, I'd like you to teach him how to tie his shoes. And they all looked at me like that he can't tie his shoes. He'll never tie his shoes, right? And I said the same thing. How do you know if you never tried? No mm -hmm. one has ever taught him. You know, they, they just say, you know, have him use Velcro, right? right. <laughs> why, ta why teach him? I said, but no one's ever even tried to teach him. Now, this mm -hmm. is a child he can't read and write. He can't even hold a pencil. Right. And within one month, he was tying his shoes. Wow. So and, and that's kind of my point. You know, it doesn't mean that everything. And, uh, but unless you've tried, you don't know how far they can go or what they can do. Right. People surprise you all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you certainly in your story. Right. Surprised people, too. And you exceeded what people initially thought. So I think that has to be really a framework that people use overall for all of our students. Right. Yes. That we have to keep trying. And, you know, and trying different methods too. He didn't learn the traditional method. I think he used or bright orange laces and there were some adaptations to it. But ultimately he learned to tie his shoelaces with regular laces. Mm -hmm. And that increases independence, right? Absolutely, wow. yeah. That uh, reminds me of a story. I was out at a theater with friends and I was using my crutches and um, the usher at the theater, uh, our seats were upstairs and, and the theater's old so it didn't have an elevator. and. Um, the usher said, oh, he can't, he can't climb those steps. And my friend said, first of all, you don't know him, <laughs> you know, and if he can't climb those steps, let him be the one to say he can't climb those steps. Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. know, don't, you don't know him. She said, because I've known him a long time and I don't know if he can climb those steps, but if he wants to try, we'll get him up there, <laughs> you know, exactly. we'll make it happen. <laughs> so it's just really not, um, you know, not making assumptions and always just trying and, and seeing what uh, what can be done. And, and, you know, you'll be surprised. <laughs> and the capacity to grow. I mean, mm -hmm. and I think of my background, having started my education as an English language learner, being placed in all the low groups, right? Like as somehow that was telling me that I couldn't, right? And it really took someone believing in me and saying oh but i think you can and then to really push that standard higher that i then internalized and then rose to that level mm -hmm. so i think um people have to really be mindful of how much do we also per, per, you know perpetuate that type of um setting the bar low keeping the bar low um are we really giving students opportunities to really go as far as they can, or perhaps further, as they say, um, you know, rising to the occasion. Right. So, and that's what inclusive education is really about, isn't it? Yes. Um, it kind of fits in with that, the philosophy and really um, the federal and state mandate also. It's not like we just make this up and just like it just because it's also what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of ways that we help to push that forward 
um, you know, sometimes it's those implicit biases that we don't mean, you know, um, but are there that sometimes affect the work and affect the mindset also in negative ways. Yes. Yeah. And um, speaking of the uh, state and, and uh, requirements and things like that, can you share with us some of the uh, barriers from a statewide perspective uh, to fostering inclusive practices? I'm going to tell you that in Jackson, um, a really primary barrier that the state has created is financial. Uh, we are an S2 district. I don't know if you're familiar with what that means. Uh, we have faced very dramatic cuts in our budget every year, uh, millions, uh, which obviously means a loss of teachers, interventionists, specialists to support students in general education. Um, large class sizes. So all of these things obviously don't make the work in general education, supporting students with um, disabilities or English language learners, um, it makes it really a strain. Um, originally S2 was created at a time when our society was different. Uh, it was a different time of education. Uh, there were different needs. This was all before COVID. And now we look at COVID and we have a lot more students with behavioral challenges, emotional challenges, um, you know, certainly the stress levels of staff. I mean, all these different pieces come into the mix, uh, which is making these cuts that much more dramatic and impactful on a district like Jackson. We are not the only S2 um, cut district, Arthur, just so you're aware, there's other ones, um, but it was really done um, everything sort of uh, becoming worse um, educationally in terms of student needs, uh, coupled with increases in English language learners. So that from the state is a huge barrier. Um, in addition to that, I would say just, uh, you know, change is hard. And I think change, especially post COVID is harder, right? Because of all the challenges. Um, I think parents also are feeling stress and, um, there's a general mindset around inclusive education, too, um, that I think is always something that throughout the state and including Jackson, that we can have to continue to support a mindset that embraces inclusion. Um, and that could be with educators. It could be with parents, um, you know, across the board. So uh, those are certainly some of the barriers that um, Jackson specifically, but I think throughout the state in general, that are challenges. Yes, um, and we're, we're kind of talking about this already, but are there rules or requirements uh, that the state puts in place, um, you know, that are, that also make it difficult uh, as it relates to inclusive education? I think the legal process, the way it's set up makes it hard. Um, you know, I'm one when I believe something is the right for the student, I want to go forward and I'll fight for it because it's the right thing for the student, even if it, you know, um, but when you go through a legal process, it's usually, there's a lot of uh, encouragement for the rest word to settle, <laughs> to settle even if it's not the right thing for the student. Um, so that's hard, right? I'm a principled person. I wanna do the right thing by kids. So settling for the sake of uh, financial reasons, as opposed to it's not the right thing, is difficult, right? Uh, that's, it feels uncomfortable. Uh, 
Um, so I think the way the legal process is set up is certainly uh, not easy. Um, the difficulty in providing services and accessing services, right? And gen ed, because of funding, right? It does go hand in hand, right? Then that makes it hard. The state created that situation um, and really, and ultimately ends up causing inequity in districts that are have that um, differential in their um, state, um, their state funding. Um, you know, unfunded mandates, only partially funded mandates at the state. Um, that makes it hard, right? Because uh, when that differentially impacts districts, that makes it that much more of a challenge to provide a quality needed services for students, um, which is ultimately our goal. You know, this, this state is large. It has a lot of school districts, six, more than 600. Um, I think with, with that, it makes it somehow operationally, there's so much, so many nuances across those districts that the blanket decision-making that sometimes happens is really differentially impacting certain districts in ways that's really inequitable for students. Yeah, that's a really, uh, it's a great point to make that, you know, with so many districts you can't, uh, or it's, it's difficult to apply one, you know, one thing to all districts when so many different um, pieces uh, apply for specific districts. That is, uh, wow. Yeah, and that, that yeah, New Jersey looks small on the map, but <laughs> oh no, of, we have a lot, a lot going on here. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, a lot of students, townships, um, and students, and school yeah. districts, <laughs> so, and yeah. all separately, sort of trying the best that they can with mm -hmm. the resources that they're given, and the resources are not the same. Right. So um, you talk about real uh, differentials there at equity, um, which is concerning. Um, with all of us having the same goal of, you know, implementing, you know, um, the administrative code to the best of our ability, but certainly creates unique challenges, mm -hmm. especially for a district like Jackson. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then um, I would like to talk about uh, the parents um, in the situation. You have the, you know, you have the students and then you have their parents. And there are parents who strongly believe that uh, separate placement uh, is better for their children. Um, and how can we assist those parents in overcoming uh, their reservations about this? Yeah, and I am a parent. So this is very mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I wear many hats and that's certainly another parent, uh, another hat is being a parent um, of children with disabilities. Um, it is a tough process and there is different um, factors that sometimes impact um, parents and where they're at. Sometimes it's an understanding of their own child's needs or perhaps an acceptance of their child's needs. Sometimes that could be an impact. I do think um, it really starts with case managers and districts really actively listening to families about what are your concerns. Um, not just dismissing them or disregarding them. What is it that you're concerned about? They are, you know, come to the table. They're active members of the IEP team. Uh, they have a voice. They're supposed to have a voice. Are we listening to them? What is it that they fear about perhaps more inclusion, uh, more access to peers. What is it they feel that's better about these other places, right? And a lot of it, it's based on misperceptions, misconceptions. I, I always say that public schools suffer from like a, 
a branding public relations <laughs> uh, weakness that it just gets assumed that in district or public is worse. Unfortunately, I've had, or fortunately, I've had the opportunity to see many out of district placements. Public schools are comparable, if not superior, to out of, to out of district placements the great majority of the time. And to add to that, we have non-disabled peers. <laughs> we had this is their community. This is where they live. These are the children that live in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. These are their potential friends, their pot potential future colleagues. This is where it's at in terms of being part of your community. Um, and you can't get that in an out-of-district placement. They're usually far away, half hour, 45 minutes. Um, you're going to make friendships in different towns. That's not, you know, Jackson's a big place to travel even just to go yeah. through, as you know, because you it lived is. here. If you had not have to travel to other towns to go connect with people, you know, it's just really limiting. Um, you know, the beauty of having students in district being with their peers, being part of the fabric of the school, right? Part, part of it is beautiful. Like that beautiful for students who don't have disabilities and beautiful for the students who do, right? And both levels, everyone grows and is a better place because of it. You can't get that in a Nana district placement. That part is just lost, um, not available. Um, In-district programs are longer. We are for a full day. Out of district placements are usually shorter. They're usually about five hours, five and a half hours, shorter school day. So on so many levels, and yet the requests come that somehow that that must be better. And that's really unfortunate. And most parents aren't aware. They're not really comparing programs or understanding the differences. Ironically, Arthur, a lot of our special education teachers, uh, many have come from out of district placements in district. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, we have people who have all that specialized knowledge. They're just here, um, but it just gets assumed somehow that this out, outer part is, I mean, that out of district is better. So actively listening, coming to understand what parents' concerns and fears are, what the student needs are in the eyes of the parent, um, addressing those, working collaboratively to um, understand how those can best be met, um, really offering those opportunities to really, um, you know, it's a, a it's a process of gaining trust, really, of families. That you know, this is this is a good place to be, and your child is going to do well here. Um, really striving to ensure high quality programming for students. Right, you can't just you know say we're great and then not be great. Right, I mean you have to actually you know, uh, the IEP implementation has to be as promised, right? You have to do what you're supposed to do, when you're gonna do it, and do it at a level of quality that certainly um, students make progress uh, and progress that's meaningful. Um, so I think all of those, those have been strategies I've always used from um, when I was a supervisor of special ed or now as a director and even as a case manager. Um, you know, I think really um, this community piece and the value of that, I think, is uh, sometimes undervalued. And, and when people see it in action, it is just brings tears to my eyes. Um, and it is parents and sometimes it's staff. It's really moving everyone forward to seeing how beautiful that can be. Um, there's kids I brought in who 
you know, people thought, well, I'm not sure if they belong here. And, I, and in my eyes, all students belong here, right? They all belong here. They're all part of our community. There's no one, the only time is when we just can't meet the need, right? That would be the, the one exception. But my question is always, why not? And we have to kind of go through and make sure that we are not just quickly saying we can't, but that we truly can't, right? Which is honestly very rare in my eyes. Um, but really kind of challenging those underlying assumptions, as you say, of mm -hmm. why not? Why can't we do that? And sometimes parents come in, well, no, they're too disabled. They can't be there. Um, why not? I ask them that too. Why not? Well, he needs a nurse. We can get a nurse. Well, the hallway, the hallways are ADA compliant. You know, um, you know, we have begun taking more students with visual impairments. The same type of thing. Why not? You don't have to, we do have services. We do have that. We have those approaches. We have the commission for the blind. We have everything your child needs. And they're here. They're in their community. They're with their peers. Right. So um, it is a process. I think uh, districts certainly, you know, you have to sometimes build those supports and services and programming. Sometimes, Arthur, there's actually um, shortages in certain specializations for support services. Yeah. Um, that's sometimes a challenge, right? Finding the right people. Can we find the right people to support the needs in district? Um, but I, uh, I try to be ahead of that and uh, having people kind of on the ready who I already know about to provide those services. So anyone who moves in that I already have contacts or vendors approved and ready to go uh, to support the needs of anyone who might live in um, or who is here already. So... The challenges are not insurmountable. Um, I welcome parental collaboration and I welcome parents talking to each other. <laughs> so sometimes yeah. uh, some districts fear that, the conversations. I love the conversations. I'm a parent too. Parents learn mm -hmm. from each other, parents support each other. Being a parent of um, children with disabilities can be very isolating, especially the more disabled they are. Um, because they tend not to be able to venture out as much into the community or they think they can't. Um, so offering each other resources and support, knowledge of um, events and different um, opportunities is, a, is another beautiful thing around, um, you know, being a, a family with disabilities that when you can connect with others, um, and feeling like you belong to your school is then just expanding that community. Yeah, it's um, the collaboration and conversation. It's so important. <laughs> and I you think know? honesty, like I, I yes. anything I'm telling you, I've said in meetings, well, why not? Or what is it that you feel? Or um, that's actually not true. Or, you know, the short the day's actually shorter. Like everything I'm telling you, I have talked to parents about. Um, you know, let's have a conversation about this. What is it that you feel? What do you feel is missing? What do you feel that, why do you think that's gonna be better? Um, and, you know, I think too, having, um, you know, we have a lot of behaviorists on staff, which has been very helpful. You know, we have staff to help support kids do well, mm -hmm. right? That's part of our main approach. You know, we do have a lot of specialization within the district. Um, I myself have a lot of specialization, but then I've brought in a lot of specialization for my 
my behavioral team, right? So that we can better meet the needs of kids when they have severe problem behavior. And then more to that end, I've also left it open for other districts to vicariously observe our consultant come in uh, and observe and learn from the strategies that we're doing that perhaps they're not doing. It's a partnership. Like I'm doing it. Can you learn from what we're doing? Because we're open to you learning from us. I, I have an open welcome. Um, we do um, an alternative behavioral approach called PFA SBT for kids with severe problem behavior. We have a consultant from FTF who was in Boston. Um, and those we invite district, we have other districts come and watch, right? The consultations. We, you know, I'm happy to have other people learn vicariously from us. We are here to support other districts. We field phone calls all the time. You know, there's 600 districts, but we're one state. <laughs> Can we not come together for the betterment of all of our students? So I do think like cross-county collaboration also would be really powerful. Um, you know, sharing resources, building PLCs, you know, professional learning communities across districts. Um, we're still one state, we can still support each other. We can all move the needle forward together and help all of our students, right? And, you know, because independent also costs a lot of money, right? Each state has to pay for their own consultant, their own. Okay, can we not do some things like jointly and then kind of all help each other to go forward? We don't all have to reinvent the wheel, right? And I think the whole state, the, all of our students would go farther that way. So that's just a personal philosophy I have around it. I do try to bring districts together um, because I think it's just, you know, good practice, but I think it, it just helps everyone. It helps all of our students. It helps all of our districts. Absolutely. And there's, yeah. <laughs> and there's no sides. That's the whole thing. It's not like districts <laughs> against families. Right. We're all like, I consider myself an advocate for kids, right? There's no side to that. That's like right down the middle, mm -hmm. right? We're all on the same team, yeah. right? And let's like all move that team together, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not us and them. Yeah, like you said, all on the same team, trying to move the needle in the right direction, you know, and it, it works better, um, you know, better together. Isn't that what? <laughs> yes. There we go. That's the NJCIE yes. slogan. That's their slogan. Better together. Better I love together. it. <laughs> so we can, you know, it's it, and it's so true, though. It's, um, you know, not keeping the secrets from each other, sharing with each other. And like you said, partnering and collaborating with each other It all. Um, because we all have that one same goal, that one mission of making it better for the students. And, um, you know, when, when we all work together, it, it can really, uh, you know, we can really start seeing some great change. And uh, Absolutely. yeah, so thank you. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really uh, great to meet you and talk with you and, um, you know, definitely look forward to our paths crossing again in the future. Likewise, yes. this is an enjoyable conversation about one of my favorite topics. Yes, <laughs> yes, and I love, uh, I say it to a lot of the guests, um, you know, I, I can tell, uh, even though we're meeting on Zoom, your passion for this and, um, you know, that you truly believe in it. And that's what I enjoy about these conversations of um, meeting like-minded people who are so passionate about um, a topic like inclusive education and uh, their desire to see the change and to make the change and be a part of it. And, um, you know, so it's, it's really great to uh, have this conversation with you. So thank you. 
Uh, well, thank you for uh, inviting me. And it was an honor and absolutely a pleasure. So yes. best of luck to you, Arthur. Oh, thank you so much and enjoy your day. <laughs> thank you, you too. Thank you. We thank you for listening to this episode of the Inclusion Think Tank podcast. This podcast is brought to you by New Jersey Coalition for Inclusive Education and JCIE. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media at NJCIE. Until next time.